Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our July Bold Conversation. My name is Jason Franklin. I'm the Executive Director of Boulder Giving and excited to be joining you all from Basin Harbor, Vermont, where I'm at a conference right now, and excited to have Ian Fuller with us from New York City and Brent Kessel out in California. So we've got different parts of the country represented. Um, great to see so many people joining us and continue to coming online. Uh, before we dive in to this conversation, which is looking at how to align your money with your values, both your investments and your philanthropy with the values that you hold. Want to just get a couple of housekeeping rules out there for people. Uh, this is a webcast, so you'll be able to ask uh, questions of Brent and Ian and I and see all three of us. Uh, we don't have a audio um, component for all of those people who are joining us, but if you have a question at any time, please feel free to type it into the Q&A section down below. I've got some questions that I'll be asking to get us started for the first 20 minutes or so, but then we will be, uh, would love to have your questions for Brent and Ian um, and weave them into the rest of the conversation. We will be on until uh, 1 o'clock, and if you have a friend who wasn't able to join this call, don't worry, it will be recorded and it will be up on our website in a couple days, and you'll be able to share it with everyone. So with that all being said, um, Ian and Brent, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, looking forward to the call and the conversation. Um, Thanks for having us, Jason. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. a pleasure. Thank you. So we always uh, assume that people have read our both of your profile on the Boulder Giving website, so we won't ask you to tell us your life story right now to start us off. But just in case somebody hasn't, can you tell us, and maybe Brent, if you want to start with this question, how did you get started in impact investing or values-aligned investing? Well, I, I think it goes back to being born in South Africa and spending the first 10 years of my life there and, and seeing the inequities of apartheid, um, as well as being raised in a family that, that included an entrepreneurial father and a therapist for a mother. And so this combination of kind of uh, introspection, social sensitivity, and ambition um, really drove my whole career. And I remember sitting on some steps in India in 1995 and just feeling like my career as a mortgage broker wasn't heartful or spiritual or meaningful enough and uh, deciding I really wanted to do something that would connect um, my heart and deeper spirit uh, with people and with finance. Um, I've always loved finance and numbers, and so basically came back and in 96 opened Abacus, and uh, since then have been doing initially socially responsible investing and then uh, more impact investing starting about nine years ago and, and have done a, a whole lot of things in every asset class uh, around the world. And it's the most gratifying part of my job. I just love it when we're able to make a big difference and earn market rates of return and help clients reach their goals. It's like that 
alchemy of, of finding all three of those in the same investment is really rewarding. Great. And Ian, how about you? Absolutely. I think much like Brent said, my own experience was certainly birthed in community and family. Um, both of my parents, too, were entrepreneurs, uh, though within Newark, New Jersey. And while I didn't have the vocabulary around it at the time, I would say they were certainly social impact entrepreneurs um, operating within their communities. My mother ran a community arts-based gallery space that looked to hire young people of color um, and really give them a, access not only to art and sort of the dignity that that comes with, um, sort of the ability to prove a voice, and also the ability just to sort of experience and professionalize themselves within a sort of business environment. Um, my father sort of was an investor within affordable housing within Newark, New Jersey, and if the callers are familiar with Newark, Newark by any stretch sort of hits all the major markers of sort of an under-resourced area. And my parents were operating in these communities for quite some time. So while I didn't think of it as impact investing, it was just sort of this is what you do. You do right by your community. You do right by those who are in the community. Um, as I became sort of more professional within the financial services sector, this was just kind of a, an integrated part of my identity. Um, the way in which I operated both at Goldman and Merrill Lynch um, was very much about how do I incorporate my own social values within within this atmosphere. Um, it wasn't to be divorced. And I think you'll hear many millennials say that, that social impact and financial return should not be divorced whatsoever. And that's really sort of the, the gestation period, the genesis of our firm um, when we launched in 2009 as we spun out of a major um, brokerage and banking firm, uh, was really how do we integrate all these values and again, bring our whole selves not only to life, but also to our finances. Great, thank you so much. Um, so I've got lots Absolutely. of questions for you, and I know we'll have more questions from our audience about you know, what should we do, how do we do it, how do we approach, but we always try to keep with Boulder Giving the connection back to our own individual experience. So I wanted to ask you both to kind of start us out. What does it look like in your own lives to align your money with your values? Are there a couple things that you've thought about in particular with your own giving and investments that bubble to the top as priorities or strategies or approaches. Um, and we'll give it to you for this one to start us off. Absolutely. So over the last several years, I've been kind of thinking about what's most important to me. And I, th I think this is probably a good prism for many to begin, which is what are my major missions within life? What do I want to accomplish? What's important to me? And really that informs my own sort of necessity prerequisite for how I go about social impact, whether that's within the philanthropic world, as I see it, the giving sharing capacity, or in the investment markets. Um, so looking at my own investments, I really shifted from every regard, whether that's both my consumption as well as my own investments. And so with respect to investments, in my own personal experience, I've really begun shifting and I've shifted all of my sort of short-term assets that would be considered more conservative assets to both community development institutions here in New York City, uh, local community-oriented banks, and as I've gone out on the risk tolerance spectrum of how far I'd like to be involved, um, going in the full gamut of range, I've begun working with a team of folks um, that I actually went to graduate school and, and have started a small impact angel group in which we're providing seed capital to 
local community-based um, entrepreneurs who are trying to, to address some major significant social problems here within the New York metropolitan area. Um, and so while I'm also engaged in socially responsible investing with respect to kind of my public secondary market investments, stocks, bonds, and so forth, I really try to take a look very deeply at how I can also orient my banking, my investments, all the way out to sort of my entrepreneurial ventures as well, all aligned with this very keen sense of mission. Thank you. Um, and anything, Ian, in terms when you think about how you're giving and you're investing lineup, are there any connections between the two? Yeah, absolutely. So I have this weird thing. Once upon a time, someone told me that the best ideas come in threes, and so I view everything in the world of like a trifecta. Um, and so there are three core areas for me that I, I try to focus on. So one is sort of wealth empowerment, financial justice. Um, and the way in which I'm trying to address that is both through financial literacy programs, to which I work with a number of different organizations here in the New York metropolitan area. I just taught a course yesterday with a great organization called World of Money, um, which is helping young people of color here in the city from the ranges of 10 to 17 get financial literacy at a very key age. Um, and across the spectrum, that's been an absolute lack within our overall um, educational system. Um, so there's that. There's the ability also for us to seed early stage investors who are, excuse me, early stage entrepreneurs who are providing significant services to under-resourced areas. So all that goes with under the scope of, again, wealth empowerment, economic justice. The other tier, the secondary tier that I'll call, is community building. And so I've addressed it both through arts giving, arts organizations um, here that are operating in the city, um, really that I believe are social justice, community development organizations operating in a few key areas. So there's a laundromat project in New York City that's operating in Bed-Stuy and Harlem that I think is doing some incredible work. I'm involved with another organization in Newark, New Jersey called City Without Walls that's doing arts outreach and also the promotion of emerging artists. And then lastly, it's really about civic engagement for me as well. So working with a couple of organizations around good policy, um, policy reorientation, both on the local level as well as the federal level. So those, as it now, are kind of my trifecta, as I say, that this like three key part thing that gets me going, that gets me inspired. And I really try to think around my philanthropic activities as well as my investments through that framework. Great, thank you. And Brent, I know you similarly have kind of looked at, on the personal side, both your investments and your giving. And um, I always love when you mentioned like going from the random organizations to now the spreadsheet that your entire family has, which is actually very much how I do my own like type A planning for my giving. So tell me how, Tell us all, how do you kind of think about your giving, think about your own investing? Well, I think uh, I started out in my 20s as a reactive giver and, uh, you know, would, would give to homeless shelters in L.A. And, and other kinds of places that I felt needed the money and were asking for the money. And then when my older son, who's now 14, was about two, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes which luckily is, is manageable, but uh, also it can benefit from a lot of research dollars. And so my, my philanthropy really took a huge jump at that point for self-serving reasons. And after about two years of raising quite a bit of money for diabetes research, I ended up, you know, I was kind of soul-searching one evening, and I said to myself, well, you know, what about all the human beings that are dying of 
hunger, of sanitation-related illnesses, of you know, or not even dying, but having other levels of suffering that this money could go a lot further towards. And sure, I still want to fund diabetes research because I, I care greatly about my son and other people with that disease, but it shouldn't be the end-all, be-all. And that's where the spreadsheet came into being and, and started listing off the issues that matter most to us. And for me personally, um, those are human rights, the climate, and poverty alleviation. And so those are really the three main directions of our philanthropy. I do want to say that I, I feel like as much as impact investing is getting all the press these days, there is a huge, huge role for philanthropy. And it's a role that impact investing will never fill. You, markets cannot solve everything. Markets cannot provide relief after a natural disaster. Um, they cannot feed people in a, in a war-torn area. And most importantly to the ecosystem of impact investing, most of these, these businesses come up, they're industries that didn't exist yesterday. And you have to create products and create markets and provide technical assistance and find entrepreneurs and managers to run the businesses that often require philanthropic dollars for their training and for proving out that the market actually exists and the product will actually work. So there are tremendous examples of, of philanthropic commercial capital partnerships, um, one of which I'm invested in called Sanergy in Kenya. Uh, Sanergy actually spun out of the winners of the MIT business plan competition, and I got the pleasure of meeting with them uh, last January in Nairobi. And Sanergy is basically, very quickly, they manufacture and sell low-cost toilets into the Kibera slums and other slums around Nairobi. Sanitation is one of the leading killers of children and people in general in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a huge, huge issue. Uh, Two billion people in the world don't have access to good sanitation. And what Sanergy has done is rather than just buy toilets and stick them in slums with no one to maintain them and no one to deal with the waste, they've created a whole business model by which there's an entrepreneur who owns the toilet, the waste gets converted to fertilizer, and that gets sold, and that's really the revenue driver of the business. Now, that technology to turn human waste into fertilizer and next into biomass energy wouldn't have existed if not for a grant from the Gates Foundation. So that's philanthropic capital. It's very rare that you're going to find a venture capitalist or an angel investor to provide that huge, huge high-risk capital. So I, I say to people, think of it as a spectrum, and your philanthropic dollars are your 100% guaranteed loss investment. Therefore, you should demand the highest possible return because you're guaranteed 100% loss. Um, you know, some of the things that Ian was mentioning, the community development dollars are very, very secure. So you don't need to demand quite as much impact from that or quite as much financial return because you know you're going to get your principal back. And then there's a whole spectrum in between. Um, so just to throw out a couple other things, you know, we have um, expanded into a lot of poverty-related philanthropy and then at Abacus, we have something that we call the Abacus Generosity Initiative, or AGI for short, which uh, makes those of us who have the curse of working with tax returns uh, giggle a little bit, as it stands for adjusted gross income <laughs> in the financial world. But anyway, AGI is where we each month uh, do a different project to benefit uh, our local community or the wider global community. And so some of those are your typical volunteering efforts, uh, some of them are awarding our Abacus Charitable Grant once a year, which is focused on financial literacy, poverty alleviation, or environmental change. Um, and any of you on the call are welcome to apply for it. The details are on our website, abacuswealth.com. And um, 
Yeah, so AGI is a big thing. Then my family philanthropy is is a main focus. And then, like Ian said, all of my investments are are invested very similarly to our clients. Um, have had a lot of private equity investments over the last nine years in things like microfinance, education, health and wellness, green products, renewable energy, clean tech. Um, we uh, launched the first kind of global index funds that environmentally screen about 5,000 stocks around the world and put more money in the ones that have the best uh, environmental records and less money or no money in the ones with the worst. All of my pension money is invested in those strategies. And I'm actually right now trying to take my portfolio to fossil fuel free, um, kind of following Stanford's lead a little bit, but going beyond coal and going to 100% fossil fuel free uh, because of the whole stranded carbon issue, which I can talk more about later, time permitting. Great. Um, well, I'm listening to you, and I know we have you know, such a huge range of people who RSVP'd for the call today. And when we were, I was looking at the list of who was joining us, we have folks who are listening in who are really experienced and have been spending, you know, 10, 20 years also doing this work. We also have people on the call who are brand new to thinking about how to take the first couple steps of even thinking about where their values and their money meet. Um, and listening to the examples that you both give, I can imagine for those on the call for whom this is new, that seems rather overwhelming to think about the integration of impact investing and equity risk and the number of terms that you each provide. Um, and I know when I first got started myself thinking about this, you know, 12 years ago with my own investments, I shut down at first because I was like, I'm going to do this. And then I got the booklets and I read them. I Every fourth word I didn't understand, going to the dictionary gets exhausting, and then I turned away and it took me another two years before I came back a second time. So for two, well, a pair of questions, but first off, for those on the call who are newer to the idea of impact investing or socially responsible investing, who haven't thought about that alignment, where do you start? Uh, I'll give it to Brent first. Okay. <laughs> I, I'd say the most important thing is start where your passion is. So it's not, there isn't a black and white standard of what is impact investing or what is socially responsible. So, you know, the, the very first question I ask people is what, what matters most to you? What causes are you most involved in? If you could only move the needle on one issue, what would that issue be? And for some people, that's climate, because they feel like that trickles down to everything else, like food security and human rights violations in, in war-torn areas where droughts may have created resource uh, depletion. Um, <clears throat> for other people, that's a very specific kind of focused area. Maybe it's early childhood education in West Africa or in India or something. So find the, the issue that matters most to you, and then research around that. Um, now that's one way to go because your your compassion will fuel the research and your desire to make a difference in the suffering of that community or the planet as a whole will be what helps uh, give you fortitude to, to make it through the, the long, hard slug that, um, that Jason described. 
Um, <laughs> if you really just sort of want to get started and kind of get the lay of the land, um, there's a lot of kind of good white papers and books out there now and, and websites that can uh, give you a sense of things. The Global Impact Investing Network is one, G-I-I-N.org. Um, the U.S. Social Investment Forum is another, USSIF. Um, and there, there are a bunch of others. I'm sure Boulder Giving has a, has a resource list. Um, and, you know, just that, those will give you a sense of everything that's out there. But as Jason said, that, that may overwhelm you more than, than inspire or help you feel tremendously supported just because there's so much to do. Um, I mean, if it was easy, I don't think firms like Ian's firm or, or my firm would exist because it, you know, we view ourselves as kind of stewards that help you figure out exactly what your causes and issues are and what the services and products are that best map onto what you want to see uh, change in the world. Makes a lot of sense, exactly. And Ian, anything to add to this? Sure. I think I, in my capacity, I would add that a mission statement for me is probably the most critical point. I think Brent really hit on that about identifying where your passions lie around the social issues, environmental issues that are, are most calling to you. Um, what we ask, and this is what I've done for myself as well, is really designing a mission statement that encapsulates it and articulates what are the most meaningful issues that I want to address. And from there, sort of viewing, okay, how can I identify these issues and match them with asset classes, my own risk tolerance, <coughs> excuse me, time horizon and so forth, and find the products and services prospectively with someone who's sort of qualified in this area to move forward on. One of possibly the most easy ways of going about it, frankly, is just to look at some of the community development funds that I mentioned earlier, or credit unions, local banks, and so on. And that's one of the easiest measures to begin aligning sort of just your basic banking activity that doesn't require any significant risk around. And then that's sort of, as I see it, a very easy beginning step towards social impact investing in some capacity. Once you start beginning to move the needle on that regard, you can sort of pilot other issues um, that come up for you. But I think that's one of the easiest ways to sort of begin this slow approach. But indeed, it can be overwhelming. And so as with any new approach, any new discipline that you're beginning to adopt, start slowly. And any before I switch over to suggestions for those who are more experienced, any common missteps you've seen people make as they're getting started? I know you're saying, you know, get started slowly. It's complicated. But where do people go wrong? What what sure. so, so a couple of the, the missteps that I've seen is actually um, not applying the same sort of rigor and due diligence with respect to those impact investments that one may be considering. Um, just because it's an impact investment doesn't mean it doesn't need to be held to a very high standard just the same. I think that's the beauty of the impact investment world as it continues to evolve, is applying the same sort of traditional rigorous lens, but beginning to expand the framework of what risk is, right? We in the impact investing world, we're really beginning to take a view of long-term value creation rather than short-term value creation. And that doesn't discount or allow us not to apply that same rigorous lens, same rigorous worldview of risk, of tolerance around how we begin the investment world. And so I would say that's probably the biggest misstep that I see. 
certainly what that leads to often is making investment decisions that may not ultimately align with the values that you hope we outlined in the mission statement, um, and also beginning to be involved with investments that may not actually meet your risk tolerances. So you may find someone who's very interested in impact investing and suddenly they're making early stage seed investments within impact community entrepreneurs, and by any measure, those are risky investments, even though they may yeah. match up with your impact alignment. Yeah, I remember going very early on as I was starting to think about my own investing, went to an investor circle conference, which is a organization I love, and I think they do amazing work helping new donors think about doing those direct equity investments. I got two-thirds mm -hmm. of the way through my first IC gathering and realized I had no place being there and thinking about my own investments in that context. Right. I was not at all ready. <laughs> um, it's a huge step to move towards that, absolutely. Um, I'll just add other... real briefly. Yeah, I was just, I mean, I, I love what you said, Ian. I, I, could, I agree with everything you said wholeheartedly. I think impact investing or social investing got a huge setback in the crash of 2000, the tech bubble. And the reason was that most socially responsible investing of the 90s was defined by exclusions only. So, you know, it had started with South Africa in 86, let's divest Coke because they're still doing business in South Africa. You know, CalPERS joined on that bandwagon and, and over time there was enough pressure brought to bear on the South African economy that essentially they had to give in. Um, and so that then spread to tobacco and, you know, different forms of nuclear energy was one of the movements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was all about exclusions. So uh, many of the best SRI funds, SRI stands for socially responsible investing, for those of you new to this, um, many of the best SRI funds in the late 90s had basically gotten out of tobacco, out of most manufacturing, out of all energy, um, you know, oil companies and the rest. And when you get out of something, you have to, by definition, overweight other things. And so what they had overweighted without ever intending to were financial services companies and technology companies. And those were the two categories most hurt in the 2000 to 2002 crash. So what happened is, you know, and, and all of us, I think, we, we often have spouses or parents or others that we are co-investing with, or at least they're asking what we're doing and why we're doing it, and, you know, we're a bit under a microscope sometimes, um, or even to ourselves. And so what happened to many investors who, who took that path was that their SRI investments went down 60 or 70% in that crash, whereas the S&P 500 only went down 40% or so. And there was a big I told you so kind of, you know, factor that, that kicked in. And people blamed that on social investing, and it wasn't social investing. It was the lack of rigor and discipline that Ian referred to, where people didn't do their social or impact investing with an eye to what we call sector neutrality, which is to say what are the sector allocations of the market in general and keep those sector allocations as you implement your impact investment profile. Um, there are so many good research reports on what makes good equity investing and, you know, how you focus on size, how you focus on value, how you focus on turnover and tax efficiency and low costs and, you know, all, all kinds of factors. And all of those can and should be integrated into your impact equity investments um, so that, I, I mean, the most important thing, I think, for this whole movement is that we continue to demonstrate 
equal or better performance than the unscreened equivalents. Because if we have another 2,000, we're going to be set back five or 10 years because all the big fiduciaries and traditional holders of wealth will say, yeah, it's, it's still you got to sacrifice returns if you want to make a difference, and I'm not willing to do that. Yeah. And I know people also get, because of exactly that and the, the lack of due diligence, the moments where there have been losses, um, we've heard from many people who've come to us at Boulder Giving they bring up these questions to their financial advisors and are patronizingly told that that's not smart investing or it's not worth doing. Mm. What do you suggest to somebody who's not working with one of you, who's not working with an advisor who is already committed to these questions but who may have a more traditional financial advisor, besides perhaps leaving their advisor and finding somebody new? Um, what would you? What is your suggestions to them? How do they? What should they be asking? How should they frame it to be able to push in a traditional setting some of these questions? Um, Brent, I know you had mentioned you had a couple of reactions when we talked about this before. Oh, sure. Well, so it's interesting. About seventy-three percent of advisors out there claim that they only bring up impact investing when asked by a client. And yet 80% of clients say they're not going to bring it up. You know, they're waiting for their advisor to, to make investment recommendations to them. So we have this sort of ships passing in the night phenomenon. Um, and yet when advisors do learn to speak this language and start bringing it up, it, they find it's a great way to engage and deepen their relationships with their clients. So we're actually trying to train other advisors, even if there are, there are competitors, to do this and do it well. Um, because we think it's just good for the world and, and it'll help their businesses as well. So a couple of the arguments are, number one, the myth that it underperforms. Um, MSCI, which is probably the world's largest uh, provider of indexes and benchmarks, has two slides that I'm happy to share with anyone by email after the call who, who wants it. And the two slides basically look at every index that MSCI tracks on both an ESG basis, which means environment, social, and governance, and a non-ESG basis, just sort of the pure index. So probably the best known of these is, is affectionately called ACWI, A-C-W-I, all cap world index. Um, but anyway, there's 26 indexes like ACWI that are, you know, some are on the U.S., some are on Europe, some are on different emerging markets, both for ESG and non-ESG. 23 out of the 26 ESG indexes outperformed the non-ESG equivalent index over the last five years. That would shock most people, you know, in the investment world or out there. The, the conventional wisdom is that ESG leads to underperformance, and it actually hasn't. Number two is that if people are managing a trust, if they are a trustee or if they're a registered investment advisor to you, then they have a fiduciary duty. And a lot of people think that the fiduciary duty says that they have to only focus on returns and only on maximizing returns. And that's not actually what the language says. It says you have to maximize value. And as Ian said, value includes long-term value. There's no value in a company. I mean, use the whole stranded carbon example. Um, if the oil companies are largely, they largely derive today's market valuation from their carbon reserves that are in the ground, coal and oil that are in the ground. But if you read the Cancun Agreement, which says all these governments are committing to not doing things that will raise global temperatures by more than two degrees centigrade, 
and you talk to the scientific community, you find out that 80% of carbon reserves will have to stay in the ground. They will never come out. That's called stranded carbon. That's a very, very real financial risk to the energy part of the portfolio, which is about 11% of the world market capitalization. That's big. If 11% of your portfolio suddenly becomes worth, let's say, half as much, that's a giant problem, a giant risk. And I believe a good fiduciary ought to be looking out for that risk. Um, so those, to me, are the big ones, that fiduciary duty should include these factors and that the underperformance story is just plain wrong. Absolutely. Ian, would you add anything to that? Um, what should no, I think, I think Brent here. Sure. So I think Brent articulated beautifully, in fact. And, and what I would ask um, of any advisor, if I were a client, and I'm, I'm beginning to sort of reframe how I want to proceed with my investments, is really sitting down with the advisor and asking for a scope of what is our strategy and what does our strategy overall have a comprehensive inclusion of. And obviously, the strategy should be sort of how do I make my finances meet my needs, my long-term goals? But within that should certainly be incorporated, how do I begin to include my values and my mission around that? And I think that's a great launching point for a broader discussion. I think Brent is undoubtedly right that there's this myth that is incredibly pervasive, I think, amongst sort of the traditional conservative class of financial advisors who at some point hopefully will be moribund, but at some point off into the future. But I think right now it's the, the necessity for individuals who are working with advisors to really begin provoking those questions and, and forcing the advisor to begin evaluating what that landscape is. Um, there are a number of great resources, many of, such of which Brent has mentioned, but also many of the big financial services firms are beginning to incorporate products and services that are available within the impact investment environment, as well as the socially responsible investing environment. And I think if we can demonstrate from ourselves as clients to advisors that this is indeed a valid approach, a valid philosophy that builds long-term shareholder creation, which leads to long-term returns, this is an excellent starting point for that portion of the conversation. Um, and I should say to everyone on the call that both Brent and Ian have said that if you are an individual investor or donor who is trying to figure out some of these questions and the place to start, they're happy to talk with you. And of course, at Boulder Giving, we're happy to help both connect you to some of the and share the resources we've connected. And we will, in the follow-up email, share some of the resources that Brent and Ian mentioned during this call, but also help connect you to other bold givers and other donors and impact investors who've started and gone down this route of just to talk to peers in this journey. So please feel free to email me. My email is jason at bouldergiving.org and I'm happy to then connect you with Brent or Ian or other bold givers and resources. Um, so for both of you, we do have a couple questions coming in. So And for those of you on the call, please feel free to write in your questions to Brent, Ian, myself. Um, we will weave in as many as we can. Um, real quick, Brent, Julie asks if you could just share the name of that, the source of the research again of those ESG indices. It's uh, MSCI, M as in Mary, S as in Sam, C as in Charlie, I as in India. Um, I'll, you know what I'll do is I'll look for the actual link, and I'll make sure I share that with you, Jason, and maybe we can put that in the follow-up email. Perfect. Um, and Nate asks, Brent, Ian, either of you can take this one. 
can you explain the difference between SRI and impact investing? So socially responsible investing and impact investing, how are they different? Absolutely. Go ahead, Ian. Um, I can go. That works. Okay, great. So I think it's been alluded to both by Brent and myself throughout the call. Um, socially responsible investing is really been framed within the overall umbrella of responsible investing, and that is investing that looks to have some sort of social or environmental positive impact. Socially responsible investing and somehow began to get this frame of a negative screen. We're going to rid ourselves of all the sin stocks, the villainy, if you will, within the marketplace and keep those outside of our portfolio. The beauty of impact investing, though, is it takes a deliberate approach towards gaining some sort of positive social or environmental return. And also it has that combined component that we spoke of earlier of having a rigorous mechanism for how we measure that impact. Um, and I would also say I think you can often consider impact investing as a subset or one strategy within a broader socially responsible investing approach. Do you see that's fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so another question from Emily is how much money do you need to start investing and make a difference? Uh, Brent. <laughs> How much money do you need? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, I would say you actually need no money to make a difference because you. one of the biggest areas of impact investing is shareholder advocacy, where you go and really make your voice heard and vote, vote on proxies or even introduce shareholder resolutions that will move a corporation in the direction you want it to move in. So... You know, there are minimum number of shares that, that need to support a resolution for it to get a vote and, and certainly for it to pass. But they don't have to all be your shares. You can go around to other institutional shareholders. Um, most of the largest investors that own most of the companies we all do business with every day are pension plans that, you know, are, that are, exist for the benefit of our school teachers or our, you know, government employees and union employees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and those organizations are very socially sensitive. They're very socially minded. And if you go to them and say, hey, this issue is really a problem. Um, for example, about six weeks ago, a group we're involved with had been putting a lot of pressure on Exxon to disclose the environmental uh, effects of their fracking operations. And they've been resisting and resisting and resisting. And, and this group got enough shares together to basically put it to a shareholder resolution vote. And before it even went there, Exxon just agreed to do it because they just didn't want the bad press of sort of being forced to do it. Um, so, I mean, that's yeah, I'm sort of skipping your question. I don't want to skip it. Um, it depends how much impact you want to have. If, if you want to actually own a piece of an individual social enterprise uh, there are some groups, uh, Elios Foundation, for example, out of Santa Barbara, that you can do that with $10,000. Um, Impact Assets is a wonderful group where you can uh, set up a donor-advised fund and invest that in various kinds of impact investments. I can't remember what their minimum is, but I think it's only five or 10000 as well. Five, yes. And if, if, you know, I mean, I'm not sure, Ian, what your answer would be to, for us, we build our most robust kind of all asset class uh, market return impact portfolios 
you know, generally in the seven figures. And the more there is, the more um, customized we can get on the public equity and the bond side of things. And the more you'll have for private equity, which is really where you can move the needle the most, is investing growth capital in private social enterprises because they're so risky, as Ian mentioned before, we really like people to own 100 to 200 of these in a diversified way through funds. And so to, in order to meet the minimums of those funds, as well as to still only have, let's say, 5 to 10% max of your total portfolio in this asset class, we find that people really need to be you know, into the seven figures to, to have that kind of impact. But don't let that dissuade you. If you have $50,000, if you have $10,000, if you have $500,000, there are ways to have impact with all of those amounts. And uh, perhaps I should have mentioned this when you asked Jason about our personal kind of uh, approach to social change. But one of our missions at Abacus is to bring sound institutional quality advice to everybody. And most of our industry has minimums of a million dollars or $5 million. Um, we do have a division that works with very high net worth people, but we also have divisions that work with people with nothing in assets that are just trying to get started and figure out how to save and budget um, mm -hmm. and then slowly build their investment portfolio. Thanks. That's great. And any additional suggestions you'd have or reactions? Uh, yes, I, I think I would just elaborate on what Brent has said. So. Undoubtedly, when we begin looking at market-based investments, um, there typically is sort of a financial foundation that's required to have that significant impact. But I go and sort of make a provocative point, which is to say, I think with just $1, you can actually make an impact. And that $1 can be used in any of the community development banks that I had mentioned before. There's the Center for Self-Help, uh, which is one of the brilliant um, operations down south. Uh, you have uh, RCEF Social Finance, which is a lending fund a pool, which is a $1,000 minimum. And so there are absolutely on every level of the asset class spectrum with respect to risk. I think there's really been a way in which you can identify and pair up impact investing in some capacity, depending upon how you decide to move. But undoubtedly true is what Brent has said, to really create sort of a meaningful all-out impact portfolio, which would incorporate private equity, typically a million dollars or more would be necessary. But for those of us kind of just getting started out within that spectrum or who may not have that base of assets, significant steps can be made just to move our, our banking operations to community development banks who are really beginning to invest on the ground level to grassroots organizations who are doing important work for affordable housing. Yeah. And there's a great resource. Um, a group called Confluence Philanthropy ran a pro, uh, campaign called Carry Your Cash. Um, yeah. I'll make sure to include it in the email that we send out in the afterwards, but it has the search tools to find the local community development bank or community development finance institution where you're at. And it is an easy way, place to start is the, what are you doing with your banking? What are you doing with your own credit cards? Yeah. Uh, so, gosh, we got tons of questions coming in, which is wonderful. Um, <laughs> so I see, I see a question from Shaw about, do you have an example of community development banks that you'd recommend? We will make sure to send those out in the follow-up email. So they will be there. Um, okay. But a, before I take some more questions from our audience, I did want to go back and ask you both, for those on the call who are more experienced, who have been 
look who've done these first steps, who've done the moving their cash, who looked at screened funds, who may have done, you know, looked at where does it go for public equities, private equities, and have taken some steps. What do you both see as the cutting edge? What's the new exciting things for the more experienced investor or just somebody who wants to kind of push the edges of their portfolio? Is there, are there one or two things you're particularly excited about that are kind of starting to develop? And I'll give this one to Ian to start off. <laughs> okay. Um, I think there are a few things that are becoming very interesting that in terms of how they're evolving, um, the ideas, the concepts have been around now for a few years. Um, but certainly, as Brent alluded to before, sort of ground-level seed-stage funds, which seem to be popping up now as we go forward, um, funds that are providing early-stage capital in the range of 100000 to a $1 million to really help growth-stage companies create significant impact and address society's issues. Um, that's probably one of the, the biggest areas of growth that I see. There's been a number of funds that have launched just in the last year that are both being adopted in, and invested in by not only high net worth individuals, family foundations, but really the landscape is shifting in which major institutional dollars are now targeting these. So that's certainly one area. The next area is the evolution of private equity fund funds that are working on a global capacity to address this. Um, there have been a number of brilliant public-private partnerships, as Brent alluded to before, that are providing government guarantees for significant private equity fund to fund. And the one I'm alluding to right now is Serona Capital, uh, Serona Asset Management, excuse me, that's based out of uh, Canada. And they're doing some really brilliant work trying to address global issues through the use of a private equity fund of funds. And again, applying that same sort of rigorous discipline, but also ensuring that that framing of discipline, that framing of risk includes long-term value creation. And lastly, I would say, is the social impact bond. Um, that's something that's been sort of a, a concept that's been around for a number of years, but is really now beginning to gain traction. Uh, there was recently uh, a partnership with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, in which the social impact bond was launched out to a number of investors, and these investors funded it. And just quickly, a definition on social impact bonds. Effectively, it is a tool that's being used by federal government as well as individuals, and it can certainly be done on a municipal and local level. But in essence, it is a bond that's being created, a loan tool that's being created to fund a specific social issue. So some of the examples that have been used as sort of social impact bonds might be, how do we go about reducing recidivism rates within the country? And if we can reduce those recidivism rates through an employee-based operation that helps to train and professionalize um, recently introduced individuals back into society, what sort of savings do we gain from that? And with those savings that we can match up and give those investors who are going within these social impact bonds as a portion of the overall return. It's a new concept to some degree. It's been in development and evolving for the last, let's say, eight or nine years, um, but it's really coming to market right now. And despite the fact that it is a structured product, a more complex product, I think that's really on the vanguard of where impact investing can go. I'll, I'll jump in and just add to that. Uh, I was two weeks ago, I was invited to a roundtable at the White House uh, with a number of other private sector impact investors, um, including some of the largest foundations, family foundations in the country. Um, Prudential Insurance was there, and they committed a billion dollars to impact over the next few years. 
Um, so it was, it was some real heavy hitters in the room and some real heavy hitters from the administration uh, and from Congress. And I just want to piggyback on what Ian said. We got a briefing up on Capitol Hill from a, a Democrat and a Republican uh, House members uh, who are co-sponsoring a bill uh, around making social impact bonds much more prevalent in this country. And what they love about it is that it basically takes the fiscal risk off of the government. So if the government has to solve a recidivism problem or a homelessness problem or a environmental problem, whatever the issue is, and the private sector cares about this problem, then what they'll say to folks like us, private sector investors who are looking for some return but are also looking for big social impact is, here are your impact metrics. If you if you hit it out of the park and, and you're just incredibly effective on this in a way that really saves the government money, you'll make a great return on this bond. It's not really a bond at all in a funny kind of way, but that's what we're calling it. And, you know, if you fail, you won't get a return um, or you'll get a much lower return. So the risk and the reward are tied together, but uh, it's all the risk it, is very much tied to the impact, the social impact that you can have or not have. Um, so while I'm on the subject of the White House, uh, one of the things I'm extremely excited about is we had the Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, in the room, and uh, we had a discussion with him uh, that really traced some of the history of the ERISA regulations. And for those of you who don't know, ERISA was passed in 1976 to basically govern all of the country's pension plans. So everything from government pensions to, you know, IBM and GM's pensions, et cetera, et cetera. And it basically said to the folks that manage these things, you have to really look out for your, you know, the benefits you're going to be providing. That's all you're allowed to care about. You can't care about the environment. You can't care about anything other than maximizing economic value for these pension beneficiaries. Then um, during the Clinton years, the Department of Labor, which oversees ERISA regulations, came out and said, no, you actually can look at environmental and social issues as long as you're also looking at you know, creating value for the pension beneficiaries. And that was kind of a huge breath of fresh air into this movement. But it was only a few years later, actually in the waning hours of the Bush administration, that DOL came out and said, no, 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 you may only look at the economic benefit to your pension beneficiaries. If you look at anything else, you're violating your fiduciary duty. And Secretary Perez actually wasn't aware of this history and, um, and that it's really, it doesn't even require congressional approval to change this guidance that he, as the Sec Secretary of Labor, could basically issue guidance to all the pension fiduciaries out there who, by the way, oversee trillions of dollars. We're not talking about billions. We're talking about the largest single pool of investment capital in the world. Um, he could issue guidance to them that would go back and say, no, I mean, what I hope he does is says, not only can you, you must, in, in furtherance of your fiduciary obligation, look at environmental, social, and governance issues um, because they create and protect the value for your pension beneficiaries that, that needs to be protected. So that's a huge development that I'm very excited about. And lastly, I'll just throw out one example of, of one of the couple hundred social enterprises that we're invested in. Again, this is just a tiny sliver of the overall asset class because we look at impact as a lens that you apply to every asset class, not just the kind of private equity parts that I think a lot of people think of when they hear impact investing. But uh, this example really uh, inspires me. There's a, an insurance company, a life insurance company in South Africa called All Life. 
that is a portfolio holding of a fund that we are invested in called Leapfrog Financial Inclusion Funds. And All Life is is a very kind of funny company, or I don't know, oxymoronic company, I guess you would say. They're in the life insurance business, but they will only issue policies to people who are HIV positive or have diabetes. And you would say, well, how, why would you do that? It's like only issuing policies to tobacco users or something. They're going to die sooner. You're going to pay out more claims. You're going to lose money as an insurance company, aren't you? And what all I figured out is if they required that their policyholders go to their doctor every six months and take their antiretrovirals as prescribed, they have a life expectancy of 25 years or more. And yet there's no other insurance available to them. So they'll pay whatever it takes to get the insurance. Because unlike in the U.S. and South Africa, if you don't have life insurance, you cannot get a mortgage on your home. You cannot get a business loan or commercial loan of any kind to expand your business. So rather than, you know, all the wonderful work that Gates and Clinton and everyone else has done to, like, increase the ARV adoption and use and availability around the developing world, All Life is saying we will actually bet our capital. We will invest our capital in your longevity, in, in your ability to get a mortgage to expand your business as long as you do what you have to do health-wise. And so you're taking these very marginalized people who are basically left out there to die whenever they'll die and bringing them back into the economy. And it's a very profitable, very scalable business because no one else is doing this. So this is the fu a fund that we expect and hope to earn 15 to 20% annualized returns from, and it's creating an incredible social benefit. So, you know, our typical client who, let's say, might have $5 million altogether invested may only have 500,000 of that in these private equity companies, and maybe only 5,000 of that 500,000 is in all life. But that 5,000 could benefit 5,000 lives and, you know, make a huge, huge difference and could turn into 15 or $20,000 over the next five to eight years as all life goes through its growth and ultimately gets acquired or sold. Great. Um, so we are at just after 12.50, and we've got a bunch of questions coming here, so I'm going to See if I can bundle a couple of couple of them so we can address. We have had a couple of questions come in um, asking around different angles looking at gender and investing. So both on the as the investor or donor, how does gender figure in and what do you see as the differences between men and women that you have worked with? And on the other side of where the money goes, what's been your look at using a gender lens for investing, um, positive screening for women empowerment, other approaches. Um, so if you, you're working with men and women, how are the gender dynamics different? And if you're sure. investing in women, what does that look like? Um, with a panel that is admittedly three men. Um, always <laughs> an interesting challenge on how you have diversity on a monthly call. Those who have been with us longer know that we really work on that and lots of different dimensions of diversity. Um, but gender diversity in particular. Uh, and Ian, it sounds like you had something to start us off on this. I suppose I do, but it, that's a volatile question, so I may be stepping into a landmine here. Um, I will say that our firm is actually uh, women-led, if you will. Uh, my other business partner, one of my three business partners, is Lola West, who has been my longtime mentor um, I've been working with her for now almost 12 years, and so our our firm is already oriented with women at the leadership, and we actually view all of our investments in that same framework. Um, we've actually taken a very active role in identifying women-led investment management firms, women-led 
companies to invest in, um, being that we think it's an important check and balance in sort of the, the proper um, legislative judiciary system within a company, if you will. Um, in terms of, of differences, I think I think many of our clients, um, being that I would argue perhaps 70% of our clients are women or women-led relationships in which we're interacting directly with women. Um, all of our clients, as it were, have always sort of been attracted to us from the idea of taking on a socially responsible lens, taking on a value-based lens. So it would be difficult for me to give you anything beyond sort of anecdotal evidence about what the, the landscape of women-led businesses are or women-led and gender differentiations within sort of that context, that framework. Um, but yet we think the, the identification of gender dynamics is such an important uh, lens, prism, to which we view how we go about investments. Um, we actually believe that women at leadership, again, having an important check and balance within the overall value creation of any entrepreneurial venture, whether that's significant Fortune 500 companies, significant global enterprises, right down to early stage startups. Uh, women in, in leadership positions, we believe, leads to long-term value creation. Um, as a woman-led business, I will <laughs> echo that statement. Thank you. Brent? Uh, not a lot to add. I mean, we, we definitely have a number of women here that are financial advisors and, and uh, um, you know, some of our best financial advisors are, are women. It's interesting in the impact space, actually, a lot of the amazing thinkers are women. Um, you know, there's um, Gloria Nealand, who just started. She used to be the uh, CEO of Deutsche Bank's asset management all over the United States, which is a huge, very kind of, you know, in some ways traditional uh, investment firm and started a fund called TriLink Global recently that seeks to make loans to small and medium enterprises all around the world uh, with a lot of social impact, um, aiming for kind of mid to high single digit returns, a lot of social impact. And they actually are, I, I believe they have a $2,000 minimum. Um, so that's something people can get involved in. It's definitely higher risk than community development banks. Um, but one of the things you can do, for example, is when you're putting together your bond portfolio, um, there's some really low-hanging fruit, I would call it. So, so bond investing and municipal bond investing is is definitely in that category. Where, for example, you can say, all right, if I'm going to if I'm going to have a municipal portfolio of a million dollars, and that's going to have a hundred names in it, you know, I could just let my muni bond manager go out and buy whatever they they find. But or I could screen it, and I could say, I only want to buy from municipalities that have the lowest um, wage inequality between men and women of all the municipalities out there, or the lowest wealth inequality, or where average commute times are the lowest, which tells you that the urban planning folks at that city have actually put some thought into where they put residential, retail, and employment centers. Um, and that you're not going to give up any return for doing that. Now, you know, are you actually going to move the needle? Is that going to make another municipality change their policy? Only if you publicize it. So going back to your question, Jason, about what should experienced investors do, I think you really need to ask yourself what your resources are beyond your money. Are you willing to put time into being an advocate? And if so, for what issue? You can't pick five issues. You really kind of have to pick one, maybe two, and speak up on that issue and make some of your investment dollars channel towards that. Um, can you influence other family members or business colleagues? Um, you know, What are the constituencies that would be responsive to you 
and how can you get more and more capital to move in the direction that you're moving it? Um, the, the first microfinance investment we ever made in 2006, we did a study, and, and for every dollar that was invested in this fund, $486 of follow-on capital came in from Silicon Valley venture capitalists and, and ultimately public offerings and other kinds of things. You know, and that kind of leverage is, none of us can do that on our own. We can't get $500 of capital, you know, to come in for each dollar we've put in. But if you, if you invest well and if you spread the word well, the, the scalability is tremendous. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, unfortunately, that that brings us to one o'clock. Um, as our calls have grown, we have more and more questions. So my apologies to those of you whose questions we weren't able to get to. We do have them, and I can already see several of them could become their own entire bold conversation. So we will be reflecting on them. We will share many of the resources that were discussed on this call um, in our follow-up email. And just want to say to everyone um, here with us, Next month, we are featuring um, Roxanne Mesher is a new bold giver. We're just finishing up her story right now, working with her and Nancy Thurston, talking about this question of what does it take to become a bold giver and do you want to be a bold giver? So kind of reflecting on some of the questions around philanthropic strategy and approach to giving. Um, that'll be on August 28th. This fall, we're also organizing a number of different um, donor education programs We'll have one with Investor Circle talking about, again, kind of a deeper dive in New York City, talking about aligning your investments with your values, um, a program with Global Green Grants talking about the role of women in environmental justice on a global scale. We're working with Philanthropy and DAVA to do a pair of trips for individual donors and investors interested in LGBT issues, one late this fall in New York City looking at marriage and beyond. Um, in a U.S. context, and then in March 2015, we're going to be leading a trip to Turkey, talking about the global intersections around LGBT issues. So wide range of new opportunities and chances to talk more and learn more coming up. Please check our website and our emails for that. If you have questions for Brent and Ian, please feel free to email me. Uh, my name is Jason Franklin. Again, I'm the Executive Director of Boulder Giving. And my email is jason at bouldergiving.org, and I'll be happy to pass along your questions to Brent or Ian or help find resources from our team for you. But for now, um, Brent, Ian, thank you both so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts. And to all of you who have been on with us this last hour, thank you so much and hope you have a wonderful rest.